This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 388. Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and really intelligently imagine their experience and feel it, that is empathy. And that is a skill that can be cultivated. It's not just an on or off switch. It's something you can actually choose to lean into and to get better at. When COVID-19 became a global pandemic, somebody hit a reset button on the economy. Economists have begun referring to the 2020 event as the Great Reset Button as lockdowns and health scares caused dramatic shifts in the business and economic landscape across the world. What does this reset mean for entrepreneurs and their place in the economy as they build or rebuild a business in 2020 and beyond? Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. Glad you're here. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then a habit of intentional reading is a must. I wrote the book on it, literally. It's called Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. With co-author Jesse Wisniewski, it's available now. Find out more at readtoleadbook.com. Each week, we're joined right here on this show by another author to chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal and professional development, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and today, entrepreneurship. In a moment, we'll sit down with my friend and new author, John Meese. He's written a book called Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, Including This One. I'll ask John to share what he means when he says real entrepreneurs get paid, but they don't work for money, why he believes empathy is a skill that can determine your ability to succeed, the difference between a gateway product, a flagship product, and a continuity product, and plenty more. If you want to learn the smarter way to read books, get better at choosing the books you do read, or learn how to develop a more consistent reading habit, I encourage you to pick up my brand new book, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. You can find out all about it at readtoleadbook.com. There you can even download the introduction and the first chapter for free. And I encourage you, too, to think about someone you know who maybe isn't yet convinced that this is a habit they need to have in their lives. Part one of the book, which I'm betting you can probably skip, makes an argument for why you need to read books. Who in your life needs to hear that, needs to understand that, needs to learn that? Maybe this book is for them, too. So what am I saying? I'm saying pick up a few copies. That's what I'm saying. In fact, until the end of September, bulk discounts on the book are still available when you use the discount code READTOLEAD. What is that discount? It's 50% off. That makes each copy right now right around $10 when you order 20 or more. So go to readtoleadbook.com to find out all about that. Choose Baker Books as your retailer, and then Read to Lead as your discount code and get 50% off. You want to buy just a couple? That's fine, too. Again, go to readtoleadbook.com to find out more about my new book, Read to Lead. John Meese is CEO of Cowork Inc., co-founder of Notable and host of the Thrive Podcast. And if I'm not mistaken, he's only around 30, 31 years old. That's a lot in a very short period of time. Uh, He is an economist turned entrepreneur on a personal mission to eradicate generational poverty by helping entrepreneurs create thriving businesses, which is why he wrote his new book and the one we're talking about today. Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, 
including this one. John, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for this opportunity and thanks for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to it's a pleasure to connect, period, but also to talk about this uh, important book. Now, I'm, I'm sure you, you get picked on with the age thing. You I say do. in your book that, you know, strangers are quick to tell you you look 15. <laughs> I was going to say, good, good. You got that reference. Yeah. Yeah, it happens a lot. I wear, I mean, anybody who's listening to this wouldn't know, I suppose, but I'm, I'm wearing glasses and a button up. If I take off the glasses and the button up, like I'm going to a birthday party with my son later this afternoon and I'll be wearing a t-shirt. Well, that's usually when it happens is if I'm wearing, if I'm just like dressed down at all, casual at all, then uh, strangers are quick to remind me, you have three kids and three businesses. You don't look a day older, six or 15 or 16. <laughs> so uh, I'm told that's a gift. Uh, and honestly, I, I, I've, I've grown to embrace it, but I've also grown to uh, make sure that I, when I'm in public, I'm usually wearing a button up and glasses because <laughs> I do appear, it gives me about five years. I age about five years when I put those on. So instead of 15, I look like I'm 20. <laughs> Still 10 or 11 years younger than you yes. actually. Yes, yes, I'm 30, if, if you're curious. I'm 30 years old, yeah. Well, I had the opposite problem. When I was 18, people thought I was 32. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that says about me now, because <laughs> I'm much older than both of those ages now. <laughs> well, how does someone in such a relatively short period of time seemingly accomplish uh, so much? You On the Enneagram, you have to be a three. Am I right about that? No, I'm an Enneagram one, but I'm a social one. So if you're familiar with the Enneagram, then... There's subtypes and nine types. And so I'm an Enneagram one, often referred to as the perfectionist or a moral mm. reformer. But it, the social subtype means my energy is sort of outward looking. In other words, I don't, I don't just want to do the right thing like a perfectionist. I want to help you do the right thing because it's outward facing energy. So, so mm. that's kind of, that's me. Yeah. I am often uh, pegged as a three. Um, I think probably because I've worked with so many Enneagram threes and uh, there are so many in the like podcast and blogging world. I think more than any other type. I, I love that here you are at you know 30 years old. You've got your first book out. I'm sure it won't be your last. What's the whole process up to now been like for you? I was talking to my wife about it this morning, actually. Um, by the way, that's another thing I do whenever I have conversations. Pretty early, I reference my wife and my kids. It helps people date me. Um, <laughs> so that's... <laughs> no, but it was, I was genuinely talking to my wife about this this morning. It's weird. It's like it's a combination of it's exciting, but it also it just feels like it, it's, it feels like it's meant to be. Mm, okay. And so there's an element of like, I feel like I've, what I've done actually is I feel like I've finally accepted the role that I'm supposed to play in this life, in this world. <laughs> that it's sort of like up until now, I've been kind of goofing around and now I like <laughs> actually am doing my job, which is that I'm an author. You know, that's what mm. it feels like. It feels like I've actually just said, okay, I'm an author. And I'm excited to do it. And it was a lot of work to write this book, as you know. And uh, I've already written the second one. <laughs> so, so I'm addicted to it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> John will apparently be making a second visit on the Read to Leave podcast <laughs> in Good. the not-too-distant future. So, well, uh, let's dig into some of the book here. Uh, and, sure. And I want to have you talk a bit about what you call the entrepreneur's paradox that you introduce right away in the first chapter. What do you mean when you say that uh, real entrepreneurs get paid, but they don't work for money? Yeah, I mean, this is something, you know, I had to learn early on in business and a lot of business owners really struggle with this. It's, it's, it's this weird paradox, right? It's not a contradiction. A paradox is, you know, are two things that seem like they contradict, but they really are true at the same time. And in this case, it's that entrepreneurs get paid, but they don't work for money. The most successful businesses, the most successful entrepreneurs, startups come from a desire to create real solutions to real problems for real people. Those are the most successful entrepreneurs. And so if you want to start a business, you need to get clear on the fact that your job is to solve real problems for real people. And the solutions are typically your products or your services. 
Now, of course, the reason why you're in business, part of that has to do with the fact, a big part of that, naturally. There's no shame in admitting that you need to and want to make money from your efforts, right? Mm. So you do actually need to get paid, right? To be a successful entrepreneur, you do need to generate profit. You do need to make enough money to support your family, to support your lifestyle, to support your, your employees, your business, all of those things. There's And that's a wonderful thing. I personally view profit as a scorecard for how well I've served humanity. And that's, that's just my philosophy when I approach business. And that kind of, that shapes everything I do, that the question becomes not just how do we squeeze more dollars out of this product, but it becomes how do we really craft this experience that it's going to be a transformation that's going to improve someone's life and solve real problems they're experiencing on a daily basis and create so much value that they are glad to hand over their money. Mm. I like this. Rabbi Daniel Lapin talks about how he refers to dollars as certificates of appreciation with president's faces on them. And it's just like when someone gives you a certificate of appreciation with a president's face on it, that's a wonderful feeling. Mm. So that's what I mean when I say real entrepreneurs get paid, but they don't work for money. Uh, And one of the examples in the book that you just reminded me of where you talked about how you uh, gladly gave your money to this company, and that was when you discovered the Dollar Shave Club. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and you, you estimated you've spent maybe what a thousand dollars, maybe more now since the book. No, I looked out. it. I looked it up. I spent over a thousand dollars with Dollar Shave Club. You know, what, like the, and it's in their name too, Dollar, right? So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so their their promise early on was pretty alluring. It was like for one dollar, you can get a very simple razor that does one job and solves the real problem in your life. And the real problem in your life. Here's the real problem for me. The real problem I have is that just enough hair grows out of my face that I need to shave on a regular basis, but not enough to rock the glorious, uh, the glorious beard that Jeff, you are right now. So, uh, so that's my problem. And I'm sure I'm not the only guy who's done this or gal, you know, walking down a line, looking at the dozens of razors and the, you know, 17 different kinds of shaving cream and going, oh my gosh, what but you're, you're walking through with this sort of like false confidence. Like there's people around you, you want to, you're an adult, you want them to think you know what you're doing. So you confidently grab a razor and mm. walk out and then you don't really know what you're doing. I mean, and, and, <laughs> and there, and a lot of these businesses, so those aren't startups, most of those razor and companies. I mean, these are businesses that have been around for a long time. And at this point, they don't have entrepreneurs at the helm. They have optimizers who are saying, if we have 17 different versions of this product that lasts two months and needs so many extra placements, then we can optimize ROI. And so they're just creating more variations of the product, hoping that mm. you know, you'll buy more of them. That's not solving a real problem. Right. Dollar Shave Club said, here's a real problem. And by the way, it's a subscription product where they automatically deliver it to your house every time you need a new razor, uh, a new razor blade. And so um, it's genius. And then along the way, they started saying, oh, yeah, by the way, you probably also need some nice shaver cream. We got some of that. Here's a sample. I liked it. I got some of it, et cetera, et cetera. But Mm. all that came from them solving a real problem in my life. And those are the best businesses. Well, uh, one word that I keep hearing more lately than ever when it comes to leadership and business is this word empathy. And I think it's safe to say John is an advocate for empathy. And it's a skill that can determine, you say, your ability to succeed. John, why do you believe uh, empathy is so important? Well, it's a human skill. And business is a human field. Mm. Um, And so it's easy to think about the fact that, you know, to really approach business as if it's a bunch of numbers in a spreadsheet or if it's a product market fit or any of these other things. But the reality is once you get clear on the fact that your business is built on creating a real solution to real problems for real people, well, then the next question is, who are the real people that you're going to serve and what are their real problems? And I don't just mean you can from the outside look and say, well, here's all the problems in their life. I mean, how do they feel it? How do they experience it? Mm. When they wake up at two in the morning staring at the ceiling, dreading a problem in their life that they're worried about, 
How, what is it? What kind of words do they use to describe that? Being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and really intelligently imagine their experience and feel it, that is empathy. Mm. And that is a skill that can be cultivated. It's not just an on or off switch. It's something you can actually choose to lean into and to get better at. And so, yes, I refer to it as your empathy advantage. Mm. But if you're an entrepreneur who's willing to cultivate your empathy advantage, that's how you'll succeed. That's how you'll succeed in business is by being able to stay in touch with how your customers' lives are affected by your products or lack thereof. Mm. And that leads me to the question I wanted to ask next that I think is directly related to this, and that's the importance of, of the transformation, uh, to mm. use your word, when selling your solution to a problem. Talk a bit about what you mean by transformation and selling to that. And secondarily, how do you price products based on transformation? I mean, the first thing I would say is that this is just how we buy things. You know, mm. as humans, we are, um, you know, selfish isn't the word, but we're self-centered, right? Our, because literally ourself is at the center of our universe. Sure. We see the world through our own eyes. We feel the world through our own hands. We mm. think about the world through our own brain. And so because of that, when we're looking around at products or services we're thinking about buying, even if we're thinking about buying a cup of coffee, what we're doing subconsciously or even consciously is buying a better version of ourselves, of our life. It's like it's by saying, oh, by buying this cup of coffee, I'm going to have more energy or I'm going to get to enjoy the taste of this. Or this is an excuse to sit down with a friend for a conversation um, over a shared drink. Whatever it is, you're, you're buying a, that transformation. The transformation could be as small as saying, I have an extra dose of caffeine that's going to last me four hours. Mm. Or it could be something more life-changing like therapy or even going to church. I mean, mm. even going to somewhere like church is still a transformation. You're buying it with your time, right? Most churches, to my knowledge, don't actually charge for it. But <laughs> you're at least, it's a transaction and that mm. you're spending your time and your energy to go there for some sort of transformation. Whether that's an experience or a spiritual transformation, whatever that may be, these actions we take are typically can fall into one of three categories that we either want to become healthier, wealthier, or happier. I mean, those are essentially the three broad, very broad categories mm. that our action can be characterized in. Now, of course, there are plenty of things we do that actually make us less healthy, less wealthy, <laughs> and sad. So it's not that we're all always making the positive choices all the time. But what I'm advocating is that you're helping people make positive choices in your products. Don't don't sell things that make people less healthy, less wealthy, or less happy. So that's what I mean about transformation. And then secondly, how you price based on that, I will say that's more art than science. And so there's no really, I wish there was a magic formula for how we could do that. Mm. And there isn't. But there is one back of the napkin formula that I found works pretty well. And so I think this is a good starting place, but don't feel like you're tied to this. And that's that you know, what I love in the businesses that I've both built myself and then worked in is when you get raving fans, when you're able to give someone transformation that's worth about 10 times what they paid. Mm. In other words, if someone is, is coming into, I mean, the easiest way to look at this is like a financial services or marketing thing because there's dollar to dollar. But if someone's paying you $1,000 to help them with a marketing campaign and because of your help, they make an extra $10,000, that's a phenomenal deal for them mm. and for you. I mean, and so they, therefore that they're more likely to be excited about your business, to love doing business with you. If someone pays you $1,000 and you help them make $1,000, that's a waste of time. But unfortunately, when we take that out of marketing and just put that in other fields, 
a lot of people approach transactions as if it's a one-to-one relationship, as if, okay, you paid me for $5 worth of clothing, so you're getting $5 worth of clothing, like a <laughs> you know crappy t-shirt. It's like, well, that's a waste of time. You know, like there's no relationship built there. Yeah. You know, we don't owe each other anything after that. Um, and so instead, I prefer to build businesses where you're giving 10 times. And again, with, so, with a lot of things, even a coffee shop or whatever that might be, example might be, you do kind of have to ballpark here, right? Like it's hard, you can't quantitatively define exactly what that transformation is worth to someone. Mm. And it also varies person to person. But if you can structure it with that concept of saying, look, I'm trying to craft an experience that's worth 10 times what someone's paying me, Mm. then you'll have customers lining up to give you money. Mm. Well said. Uh, I want to take a detour here for just a second. You've been a part of quite a few online businesses. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, you co-founded Notable WordPress theme business. Uh, You were dean of Michael Hyatt's Platform University for a time. You've got the Thrive School podcast. Uh, but then uh, a little over a year ago, you launched a co-working space, something that I had wanted to do myself and never yeah. got off the ground. But so you launched this co-working space in, a, in your community, well, near where, where I'm at right now, Columbia, Tennessee, called Cowork mm-hmm. Inc. But like less than, what, 58, 60 days before COVID was confirmed in your community. Yeah. How did you navigate that? And, and, and talk about where you're at now being on the other side of it, I, I would assume. Sure. Uh, yes, well, I'm currently talking from that co-working space. So spoiler alert, it's still here. Um, <laughs> But we did have our grand opening January 15th, 2020, which Mm. was uh, in our community that was 58 days before we closed because we had COVID-19 in our community for the first time. And then we had a lockdown in our state. And so our business was closed for 48 days after being only open for 58 days. Mm. Not a great start. And when we reopened, we said, okay, everybody, we're back. Uh, Do you want to leave your house and come (laughs) work with other people (laughs) elbow to elbow? No, I mean, the reality was we didn't send that email. We didn't tell people we were back. But as soon as the lockdown lifted, we recognized, I recognized that that it was just the wrong season for the co-working side of the business because mm. people were still scared, people were still at home. Some people were desperate for a place where they could get work done because the office was closed or they were full-time traveling salesmen who were pulled off the road mm. or they were college professors who were trying to teach a class remotely and mm. they needed a, a place where they could do that. So a lot of those people became our customers for that season of time. Mm. Now, as we're talking, you know, we get calls or emails nearly every day of new members coming in to use the space from all different walks of life, entrepreneurs seeking community, Uh, remote workers or software developers that just need a focused place to work outside of the home, especially during the summer when the kids are home. Mm -hmm. So that's going well now, but in terms of what we did at the time, from the beginning of this business, it'd be easy to say, well, what what do we do? Okay, well, we basically, we're a rental company, right? We resell office space. We get this big lease and then we sublease little spaces. Mm -hmm. It would be easy to say that, but I didn't say that. Instead, in our, you know, in our starting document for the company, we said, we help entrepreneurs create thriving businesses. Mm. One of the ways we do that is through this co-working space. But as soon as the co-working space was a non-option, we went back, you go back up to that purpose statement yes, and said, why do we exist? Okay, well, what do entrepreneurs need right now? Oh my gosh, our community is filled with small business owners who are hemorrhaging money, trying to figure out how to succeed. And so we got, there were a few businesses in town that were doing really well. So we got them to actually pay us to write sponsorship checks so that we could do training programs. And I actually didn't teach it. I had other local business leaders come in and teach a training program Mm. called Rebuild, where we worked with local business owners to help them rebuild their business after the lockdown and coming out of that and kind of Mm. redesign their product offerings. And so we saved local businesses. Now we couldn't save them all, 
There were a couple that ended up having to permanently close, but we came back to that purpose statement of why we existed, and that became the focus. During that time, I also locked myself in my room, in my office, to write the first draft of this book because I recognized that the long-term implications of the economic crisis, we didn't really understand yet, but that we needed a solution. We needed a a playbook or how-to book to build a business that could succeed in any economy, no matter what's happening that's outside of your control. And so that's when I started interviewing a few dozen of my mentors, people you know as well, Jeff. I mean, I, I interviewed Ray Edwards, Pat Flynn, Michael Hyatt, Mike Michalowicz, many, just dozens of these mentors. And ultimately, those became episodes on the Thrive School podcast. Mm-hmm. But to start, they were just interviews where I was saying, what's working? What's not working? What do we need to do here? And I distilled all that down, pulled out the common themes, and ultimately, that became the book. I mean, that's where Survive and Thrive came from. I really like this idea you touched on of what your real purpose is. It mm. wasn't to, to sublease office space. <laughs> you, you were well positioned then, I think it sounds like, to make some, some quick shifts. Some, you were more agile because you knew at the end of the day, this is our purpose. And this is one way, this office space is one way to do that. But what are the other ways? And to, to find local businesses who could, could sponsor these classes so these other businesses who are struggling could come for free. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's just awesome. I just really love, love how you've worked through that. Very, very wise. Thank you. For a 30-year-old. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. No, you're wise, period. We'll just leave it at that. Wise, period. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> we were talking earlier about the Dollar Shave Club. You've spent a, yeah. a fair amount of money with them. And, and the, the reality is, is that dollar razor or that dollar subscription, that's just one of the options. That might be the, uh, the gateway product, yes. perhaps. Talk about the importance of having a gateway product, a flagship product, a continuity product, et cetera. The reality is it'd be easy to think when you want to grow your business, you either need to, what, you know, do more marketing or create more products. I mean, those are kind of like the things people do. But the reality is what I'm teaching is that you really only need three core businesses to succeed. Can you have more? Yes. Mm. But you really only need three core products. I said businesses. You don't need three businesses. <laughs> Just because I have them doesn't mean I endorse that. That's a horrible <laughs> idea. You should have one business with three products. Um, but three, uh, three core products in your business. You can have other products, but they need to relate back to these three. And I'll explain why. Uh, the first is called your gateway product. Now, as Jeff, you mentioned, for Dollar Shave Club, this is their $1 razor, mm. right? Where that's their, it's designed to be a painless purchase that allows someone to really just take a small risk, a small bet with your company and to give you as the entrepreneur a chance to exceed their expectations. You know, like if you have an online education business, then this might instead, this might be like a little kind of like a mini course or an ebook or a cheat sheet. Mm. You know, if you have a physical product business like Dollar Shave Club, it might be this small version of transformation, which which for them is this this little razor. It might be you know something else completely differently. So for you know Mealtown Coffee, one of my favorite coffee shops right here in Columbia, Tennessee, you know it's it's their drip coffee. It's like a two dollar cup of really good uh, coffee that they not only roasted but then brewed right there in front of you. Mm. It's the gateway product. It's a painless purchase. If you're thinking, well, I don't know, I'll give it a shot. You try that out. The gateway product is not designed to make you as the business owner a ton of money. It's designed to give people a chance to become part of your universe and to mm. take a chance on you. Now, the flagship product is sort of on the other extreme. The flagship product is like the full experience. What is the epitome of transformation if someone were to go all in with your business? Now, less than 10% of your customers in most industries are typically going to ever buy your flagship product. Mm. But it should probably be one of your most expensive products. And it's designed to, in a way, it actually is a way for you to cast a vision, to, to communicate vision to your customers that your flagship product is essentially what 
what a winning looks like, mm. right? And for Dollar Shave Club, just because that example, for the, I would actually argue their flagship product is probably their bath bag. So they have like a, they have this bath bag they sell, which by itself is not actually complete. So it's actually not a complete flagship product because it's not the full experience. But there's custom pockets all throughout this bath bag for all the different products. Mm. Their chapstick, the razor, the shaving cream, the aftershave, all of the many things which I bought because <laughs> I wanted to fill with the little slots in the, in, the, in the bath bag. But once I had that, I was like, okay, I have the full experience of this brand. Mm. Now, there's a lot of businesses that don't have this clear. I should, I should say that. But like for Apple, for example, this is actually their iPhone. If you want to be fully part of the Apple world, you need to have the iPhone. It's not actually their most expensive product. They've gone a different route. Instead, they have more expensive niche products for different people who need different needs. But over 60% of their revenue comes from the iPhone alone and then that's not counting subscription revenue or app store revenue that comes from all the other software they sell on top of that. So that's really what leads their business. Apple is known for the iPhone and they have all these other things. You don't need to have all the other things. That was what I'm saying. But the third category is your continuity product. And so this is a subscription product. It's a month to month thing or it's a renewal of some kind. It's, this is the glue that holds the customer experience together between transactions. So for example, instead of just waiting for someone to come back and buy the next product where your customer experience is just based on them buying more things, this is the what John Warlow calls the automatic customer. So for Apple, you know, this comes in a few different ways. Of course, they've got Apple Music, but now they also have this program where you can get a new iPhone every is it either every year or every two years. Mm. And I think it's for $100 a month. And it's like, that's that's a continuity product. For Dollar Shave Club, that's actually their razor, right? Because their $1 razor, mm. you know, is a monthly subscription, which by the way, as soon as you buy the $1 razor, they're like, you could do that. Or by the way, here are some supplementary products, which is one of the other categories you can teach in. So for example, they have basically the $1 razor, the $5 razor, and the 10 or $12 razor. Um, and of course, I, like most people, consider myself a middle of the road customer. And so I bought the middle <laughs> the middle product. Most people, by the way, consider themselves a middle of the road customer. Well, when I first met John, I think it was about five or six years ago, uh, he was at his maybe second or third stint at uh, Chick-fil-A, helping them to do some training, as I recall. Yes. Uh, John, what did you learn from your time at Chick-fil-A about the power of what they call above and beyond that you still incorporate mm-hmm. and teach today? Yeah, well, so Chick-fil-A has an incredible practice, which they adopted very early from the very beginning of their company, which is this idea of second mile service. And it actually comes from scripture. I couldn't tell you the exact verse, but I believe it's in Matthew, mm. where there's a verse in Christian scripture where Christ to uh, his disciples says, if a man asks you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Now, at face value today in 2021, we hear that and we go, mm, okay, all right, sure. <laughs> if someone asks me to go with him one mile, go with him two. But at the time... It was ludicrous because what he was referring to, what we believe he's referring to, was there was a practice by the Roman Empire at the time where a Roman soldier, I mean, keep in mind, they had roads, but they didn't have cars, right? So Mm. if you're moving a Roman soldier from one outpost to another, they're carrying about 100 pounds of armor and weapons for miles, sometimes hundreds of miles. And so along the way, they're going to get tired. The Roman Empire, who's the occupying government at the time, doesn't want their soldiers to get too tired. So they had a practice that if a Roman soldier walked up to you and said, carry my pack, you were obligated to carry it for one mile and no longer. So you would carry a bag of 100 pounds of armor and weapons Mm. for the soldier who's part of the oppressive regime that's controlling you, Mm. right? That's controlling your life. And so that was an incredibly difficult, it's physically difficult, but it's also just emotionally difficult Mm. for your enemy to walk up to you and say, carry 100 pounds of my 
uh, weapons, which are a reminder of the fact that I own you, mm. essentially, and carry that for a mile. So when Christ said, go a second mile, everyone was like, what? No, <laughs> one mile's hard enough. Um, but that's why it's so crazy, because the idea, and Chick-fil-A actually produced like a whole mini movie about this to kind of like live action to kind of illustrate it, that the guy, the, you know, the Christian keeps walking with the pack and the soldier is like, what are you doing? Like, where, that was that was a mile marker. And he's like, yeah, I know. And he keeps walking. And the soldier's like, no, no, give that back. Like, what are you, what are you, no, you fulfilled your obligation. What are you doing here? And, you know, and the soldier is just in awe by the end of it, of the service. And that's kind of the idea here is that it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about exceeding expectations mm-hmm. and transactions is that the question isn't what is your obligation and to fulfill that exactly. It's how do you go above and beyond expectations? Because that's where satisfaction comes in. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a whole matrix in the book that shows the math of this. But the idea being that satisfaction is equal to uh, reality minus expectation. Mm. This is a math equation. It's <laughs> how my brain works. Just trust me on this one. But the idea being that if if your expectation is high, but your but your reality is low, I guess I got the math switch. So if your your if your expectation is high, but your reality is low, in other words, your your expectations were not met. Mm. When that happens, then you're disappointed. The only time you're satisfied is when your expe- is when your expectations are exceeded. Because if someone does it exactly, or like if you if someone does exactly what you expected, you owe each other nothing, and so you're neutral. Mm. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Neutral customers? No. Mm. So go above and beyond. By the way, that's Matthew five forty one. Thank you. That's right off the top of my. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I found it in your book actually. So I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I've had uh, you mentioned Mike Michalowicz earlier yeah. i had him on the show a couple of times but we have not had the chance with him to dig in to probably what is known as his best book his best known mm-hmm. book and that's profit first uh, as as a fan of of his work how has this concept impacted you and in, in, in your businesses speaking of math <laughs> yeah speaking of math well first of all I mean, I mean i dedicate an entire chapter of my book to just basically saying listen to mike michalowicz and practice profit first <laughs> so there's no other one other author that i've spent as much time, you know, promoting his work. I've paid money to go through his certification program. So I'm a certified fix this next advisor and mm. read every book he's ever written, including some of the early ones that he doesn't talk about as much. <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, I would say it's impacted me immensely, but maybe it'd be helpful just to give a brief summary of kind of where the idea comes from, mm. which it's a financial philosophy. It's that ideally profit is typically looked at like in when it's taught in business, it's like profit is the money that's left over. You have your revenue, your sales, and then you have your expenses, and then what's left over is profit. And Mike says no, and he flips that. Instead, he says your expenses is what's left over. He said, So he says, you know, revenue minus profit is how much money you have for your expenses. You need to take out profit first. And he makes a really strong case for the fact that that's really why most businesses fail is because they don't have margin built in, or a lot of businesses at least, they don't have margin built in really to pay the owners to have a reserve fund or any of these things. And so they just spend whatever they make and then they, when something bad happens, they don't really have a cushion to adapt. So this has personally impacted me. I, the first time I told Mike this, I had a chance to tell him this in an interview. I said the first time I ever practiced profit first, and he has this whole system that's really brilliant, honestly, mm. um, for how you do this, how you use it. You know, he has like percentages you take out of your business for profit or for taxes or for, you know, all those kind of things and operation expenses. The first time I ever applied it to my business, then I gave myself, and like I gave myself as if I was like a shareholder in my own company. I gave myself a $500 bonus check and I thought, this is amazing. <laughs> and I seriously thought about it. I said, I should send this to Mike as a thank you. Mm. And then I thought, 
nah. And I took my wife out to the, for the weekend <laughs> on this little retreat, uh, just like a weekend getaway. And I had a chance to tell Mike that and apologize that I didn't send him the $500. <laughs> but he said, no, I love that. He said, I love that because what you did was because you taught yourself and your wife that your work deserves reward. And you're going to do more of it because of that. Mm. And so uh, he was—he thanked me for not sending him the $500. <laughs> if you're ever inclined to send me $500, you go right ahead and do that. <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> Good to know. I'll make a note of that. Thank you, Jeff. Just yeah. kidding. Just kidding. Well, uh, speaking of chapters dedicated to, to ideas and concepts, there's a chapter dedicated to the idea of, of, of charging up front. Yeah. Uh, and you insist that we design a business and not a bank. Uh, what's what's the distinction here that we need to understand? It all comes back to this really nerdy question of are you cash flow positive or not in your business? And by the way, as an aside, this, there's the secret uh, system in the book. After chapter one, there's three chapters of marketing, three chapters of sales, and three chapters of finance. Mm. So that's the secret kind of infrastructure behind the book. But that's why we're talking about financial things now because those are, those are important. I, in my mind, you can't talk about making money without talking about keeping it and spending it wisely. Mm. So we cover that as well. I mean, basically the idea comes down to the fact that there are expenses in your business. Maybe your time and maybe if you're buying goods like coffee beans or razor blades, there's some expenses in your business. That's just part of doing business. But if you put all the burden on yourself to pay for all of the expenses and put in all the time for all of the work to create your products or services before you get paid, then essentially you're operating as a bank. You're financing your customer's transaction. Mm. And so the reverse of that is when a customer pays you up front. So with this is the most straightforward with services. You know, if you're a consultant, if you're a freelancer, um, you can bid a project. If you can get paid for the entire project in the front end and then do the work, then you're cash flow positive. Mm. Now, I also have several scenarios in the book of like, okay, well, let's just say your client's not going to agree to pay you for the whole thing up front. Typically, you can get many clients to agree to 50% up front and 50% on the back end, in which case that 50% on the front should be covering all of your raw costs. And the 50% on the back end may just be your profit off of that job. But at least if something goes south, you've already received that first payment. I, you know, I hate hearing stories from freelancers who've done a bunch of work for someone and then never, and they got stiff. They didn't get paid, but that's in their control. Because if you if you require payment on the front end, it's not going to happen. Mm. Now, in a product based business, it can be a little more complicated, but it's the same idea. It's saying when does someone pay you? At what point in the transaction? Um, and you want to be as cash flow positive as possible. I mean, I've worked with clients where their business is not cash flow positive. And so they have complicated spreadsheets showing how like, okay, so we paid all this money for all this equipment and inventory right now. And then, you know, three months from now, we're hoping enough people buy it that it pays it back. But if not, we have this big loan with the bank. Like they're actually not taking out their own reserves at this point. They're working with the bank. Um, But banks operate on this whole philosophy. That's the business model of a bank is to say, I'll give you money and charge a small interest rate but banks even assume that between 1% to 10% of all loans will just fail. Mm-hmm. They just, they, that's just built into their math. Mm-hmm. But are you assuming, are you building your business so that between 1% to 10% of your customers can just not pay and you're cool with that? Mm-hmm. Most entrepreneurs would say no. Then I would encourage you to become cash flow positive. Well, let me let me switch gears now. I've got a couple of questions I want to ask, sure. uh, not directly related to the book. But before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure that we know that I, I didn't ask about? Well, the age of information is over. I feel like that's pretty big. Mm. But, uh, you know, it's something that I cover right off the bat in the book in chapter one. But, I mean, it's just we're shifting. The whole world is shifting from this age of information to age of insight. And that's not uniquely my insight. The World Economic Forum has been kind of beating this drum for a while. But it's a shift that I see happening where all of a sudden business is not about getting people access to supplies or information because 
most products, like at my friends who own a coffee roasting company, I asked them, I said, well, how, I said, how much coffee could you produce this year? He said, oh, I don't know, about, probably about 30,000 pounds. I said, could you produce more? He's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess we'd have to get a bigger machine. I said, okay, so how much could you produce? All of it. I mean, we live in this world where supply is, is not quite infinite, but pretty close to it. Mm. And so now business is about owning demand and about communicating not information, which is sort of just like the chaos of all the facts, but just the distilled down insight of what are the two or three things that your customers need to know. And so people crave curators who can translate the chaos of information to just the two or three things they need to know. And that's going to be a shift that's going to continue to happen over the next couple of decades that I think is going to be huge. Mm, and it's part of the impetus behind launching the Read to Lead podcast is helping people yeah. understand well, what books do I need to be paying attention to? Whose exactly. books do I need to buy, et cetera? Uh, well, speaking of books, as I watched the uh, tour video this morning uh, of you walking us through your co-working space, one of the things I noticed right off the bat is you've got a library there. Uh, actually sell some some books for entrepreneurs who, who use your space. I know you're a fan of books. Give us some um, insight into your history with reading and how would you say it's impacted your, your success? More than anything else. I mean, I can't think of anything that's had a greater impact on me than reading. Wow. Uh, I started reading. Uh, so my, my mom has interesting philosophy. I'm her oldest child and we were homeschooled and that she didn't force me to learn how to read until I wanted to. Hmm. And so I didn't actually start to learn to read till I was seven. Wow. But within, but within a few months, I was reading chapter books. And by the end of the year, I was reading full length novels. And then I spent most of you know, my teenage years reading literally hundreds of books. I mean, mm. every once in a while now, I, I, don't, I didn't keep track of them. So every once in a while now, we'll come across a book or someone will reference it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I read that. You know, <laughs> uh, I just devoured them. Mm. And so all fiction books, though, I mean, I didn't read nonfiction until college. And that was like a whole other thing. I was like, wait a second. You mean the secrets to all of the solutions to all of my problems were just sitting on the shelves this whole time? I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, while I love fiction, that's where it started, I then began voraciously devouring uh, nonfiction books. Specifically, one book, well, I mean, there's so many books that have had a great impact on me, but I mean, a few that have had the biggest would be the book Platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World by Michael Hyatt. Mm. I read that cover to cover on a plane, on a flight to Alaska, to Anchorage. So it was a long flight. But I read that thing cover to cover, and when I landed, I realized everything has changed. My whole understanding about what I'm going to do with my life is mm. different. And that's when I launched. I already had a blog, but it was called The Open-Minded Economist. No one knew who I was. That's when I launched johnmeese.com. Mm. That's when I really started building my brain around myself and building a platform. And then ultimately, it actually gave me a job because I, I ran Platform University for three years. <laughs> um, but then the other book that's had the greatest impact on me has been Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Because mm. everything I do... Actually, the, the original title to this book was called Essentialist Marketing. I still own EssentialistMarketing.com, the domain, but it's the idea of saying, do less but better, mm. apply that to your business. So those are the two books that have had the greatest impact on me personally. Well, let me ask you uh, finally this. What's ahead for you as you look at Cowork.inc, uh, Notable, the Thrive School podcast, anything around the corner in particular that you're excited about and able to talk about currently? Yeah. Everything I do comes back to helping entrepreneurs to build thriving businesses. So, you know, I'm, ex I'm really excited. As, we, as you and I are talking, we're actually in the process of rolling out a new, you know, a whole new offer, a new product for, well, just at least a new approach to our products with Notable, my software company. So mm -hmm. if you have any desire in building an online platform as a author, as a podcaster, blogger, YouTuber, definitely go to notable.press. And, you know, we're building this tool for you. So I'd love to, you know, share that with you. But on the Cowork Inc. side, you know, that's now actually kind of becoming the home for, 
the Thrive School podcast. We're launching the Thrive School newsletter. Mm. We're launching a new membership site called Thrive School Pro, designed to give entrepreneurs a community with you know with coaches where you can get access to the training you need to to succeed. Whether you're starting something from scratch or you want to scale a business that really supports your life, fuels your life rather than the other way around. And this is the one that I haven't announced anywhere. So this is the one that's like, all right, take a deep breath. Um, <laughs> but we have I'm I'm launching a conference called Built to Thrive Live. Awesome. And we just signed the deal on the venue. So it'll be October uh, 14th at the Mule House in Columbia, Tennessee. And it'll be, um, you know, it's going to be a blast. And so we've already got some great speakers lined up, including a mutual friend of ours, Mike Kim, Joseph Bojang, Alex Sanfilippo, all be speaking as well. And it'll be the first conference. I've been, I've, I've been the MC at conferences. I've been speakers at conferences, but this mm. is the first one that's like, I'm hosting it and saying, welcome come into my world and we want to serve you mm. so i'm excited about that that one doesn't have a website yet so you'll just have to go to johnmeese.com i guess and <laughs> find it or cohort.inc but as you and i are talking it you know it's just uh we just signed the contract so wow and that's for this coming october yeah i'm yeah. not talking october 22 I'm no not. no i'm talking 2021 i mean we're planning to do it at, like every year or yeah. multiple times a year okay um but the first one we just sealed the deal on it'll be this october awesome Congratulations. Well, the book we've been talking about again today is called Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, including this one. My copy is signed by the author and is even personalized. <laughs> I suggest you you search a version of that out for yourself as well. Uh, find <laughs> it you, on John. Amazon, everywhere books are sold. Uh, John, thank you for being here. I really enjoyed talking to you about your book. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I will say, if you go to surviveandthrivebook.com, there's some bonuses that go with the book. So if you order it, put your order info in there, you'll get um, some of those bonuses that will help you really put it to practice in your business. I hope that helps. There are several links to books and other resources I've included on the show notes page for this episode per our conversation today with John Meese. You can find all of that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 388 for episode 388. There's a link there, too, for more information on my brand new book, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. You can also find out more about that book at readtoleadbook.com. I'm delighted to tell you that on the reviews side, Read to Lead, the book is averaging about 4.9 out of 5 stars at Amazon and other retail outlets where you can find the book. If you're one of those who's reviewed it, thank you so much for doing that. That goes a long way and means a ton. Again, more about the book at readtoleadbook.com. I'm looking forward to next week as I'll be welcoming back for the third or fourth time I've lost count one of my favorite guests. Her name is Dory Clark. She's written a book called The Long Game, and she's here next week to talk about it. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, as always, leaders read and readers lead. Read.